Are you bored living a mediocre life? We were too, and we know how to change that. Each week, we'll leave our comfort zones to explore a new topic, then step onto our soapboxes, a safe space to sound off on our latest adventure. Come explore with us. All opinions are welcome. This is a mindset. This is a lifestyle. This is Siren Soapbox. Hello, fellow explorers. Welcome to Siren Soapbox. We are on a mission to explore beyond comfort zones, and we are really starting to make waves. We are 130th in self-improvement podcasts in the UK, a category we are truly honored and humbled to be represented in. Ready to take the first step outside of your comfort zone? Dive into sirensoapbox.com, where you will find links to our blog, magazine, YouTube channel, movie club, and Eventbrite classes. So many ways to explore, pick one today, and experience life outside of your comfort zone. Have you ever looked at a group of flowers and wondered which one of them is edible? Do you think you could survive if you were lost in the woods? According to sustainableamerica.org, for much of history, humans lived a hunter-gatherer lifestyle. Before the advent of organized agriculture, early humans were dependent on food that they could acquire from their environment. They hunted and fished for protein and foraged and stored berries, honey, nuts, roots, greens, and other plants for starches and vitamins. This lifestyle required that groups be nomadic, moving to avoid predators in poor weather and in pursuit of animal herds and other seasonally available food. As plants and animals were domesticated, people began to settle in and become farmers. Foraging for food continued to supplement diets and groups dependent on hunting gathering lifestyles continued to live up until around 500 years ago. Then there was a steep decline in the number of hunter gatherer cultures. Today, the Hadza people in Tanzania are known to be one of the only remaining groups living a hunter-gatherer lifestyle. It is not hard to see the appeal of foraging. When done correctly, it comes with huge benefits for individuals and the environment. Learning about the foods present in our environment can be a great way to better understand and connect with nature. And of course, it's a great way to get delicious, fresh food for free. In this episode, the sirens returned to the wild by foraging for a meal from plants. Let's find out how they did. But first, if at any time the conversation gets too intense, the safe word is... Mango! First up on her soapbox is myrrh. My first experience with foraging was when I was, I think I was in the third grade at St. Lawrence Elementary School. And we were eating lunch and a girl I was sitting with pulled out some wild green onions that she pulled out of someone's yard on her way to school. And she was quite proud of her find and didn't pay any attention to the other third graders turning up their nose at the idea of eating something that came from someone's yard. Clearly, this girl was ahead of her time. And then several years ago, I worked in West Virginia and some of the guys I worked with would spend their weekends looking for ramps. Ramps are a type of wild onion and they're packed with so much flavor. They shared some with me one time and I put them in a soup. I think it was, and they were, it was a very strong onion, oniony flavor and very delicious for this current challenge though. I only had to look right outside my front door. I have lots of stuff growing in my yard that requires very little attention. So I, that's what I use for my foraging adventure. First of all, I picked a weed called a horseweed that supposedly has a root beer kind of taste and is used in some candy making. I made a horseweed syrup with that. 
Uh, and then I use it in my soda stream. And Mar Mark and I are on the fence about its root beer flavor, but we both agree it tastes rather earthy. Although I like it, I think it's really good. I also made a lavender syrup using some lavender for my garden. And that's really sweet and delicious. I see why people would want that in their coffee. I also dug up a daylily and ate many different parts of that plant. I dipped the flowers and the buds into some homemade beer batter that I made, and then I deep fried them and it was delicious, but I don't know that I really tasted the flower. I probably should have just popped it in my mouth to get the full experience. It really just tasted like deep fried yumminess. I also boiled and sauteed the, I think they're called the tubers from the root of the plant. And they had a really delicious nutty flavor, but the work it took to get them really wasn't worth the little bit of food I got in return for it. I did try to eat the leaves, but <laughs> that's like trying to eat straw. That was not ideal. I did. I also made a tea from some leaves that I have growing in my garden. I, I learned that raspberry leaves are good in a tea and that they have some medicinal properties. And I added some mint and lemon balm to that. And that was a very tasty concoction. As long as you like earthy teas, that is. Sara, what was your favorite part of this challenge? Well, I have to say that the part of this challenge that I enjoyed the most was getting outside and wandering around my backyard even if it was looking at all the weeds that had grown back since the last time I pulled them all up. I didn't really know at first if any of them would actually be edible, so it was definitely fun to use my plant identification app to find out what each plant was, and then Google each one to see if it would kill me. I was pleasantly surprised to find some burnweed, which is totally edible, if not totally yummy, that can be used a bit like lettuce. I also found muscadine grapevines, which thrilled me to no end because now I have decided that we basically live on a vineyard when we are going to be vintners. Plus the leaves of the grapevines are edible. <clears throat> so I was able to add that to my salad. I did find a couple of plants that I didn't realize were toxic. One being a yellow wood sorrel, which is a shame because it's really pretty with nice little yellow flowers, but we had a lot of it growing in the backyard. And now I know we need to pull it up to make sure that the pups don't ever eat it. Bill and I also went on a little road trip and we found a pond that had Queen Anne's lace and cattails. I cut up the center of the uh, stem of the cattail for my salad because Bill says that he did that as a kid and he remembers it tasting like cucumber. Mm, I didn't get cucumber, more twig maybe. As it was a salad that I was making, I decided that it was definitely not cheating to use some of the tomatoes from my backyard because as I didn't actually ever plant them, I was totally foraging them when I picked them. Those tomatoes have come back year after year and I don't ever remember planting them. I'm pretty sure a dog pooped out some seeds. So how was my salad? Well, it was really gross. The burn weed had a really nasty taste that I literally could taste for the rest of the day. Plus, <clears throat> This was the worst part. I was very uncomfortable preparing the salad. Eating the plants was fine. I mean, I like eating plants. I love a salad, but finding the bugs in them totally squeamished me out. I am not kidding. I thought about them with every single bite. I had the queen hands lace flowers on a cutting board waiting to be fried in a little butter. And I watched these little mites crawl away. It was tough to enjoy the fried flour after that, even though the flour tasted like butter it was, but there was uh, just in the back of my mind, I could picture those mites. And then there was the enormous spider in my sink that I found when I was washing the burnweed. He may have paid a little visit to the garbage disposal. I know this is ridiculous, 
but I was so uneasy eating these plants that I foraged myself, even though I totally understand all the benefits. I think it is probably true that I am more comfortable eating mystery meat from a fast food restaurant than I am eating fruits and vegetables from my own backyard. I know it doesn't make any sense at all. Liz, I feel like you may have a slightly different perspective than me. I don't know why. Um, yes, absolutely. From one extreme to the other. Um, when I saw this challenge come up, I absolutely jumped at the chance. Now, those that know me know we live next to the jungle. I'm raising two very wild and free-spirited girls. And I have been slowly kind of delving back into the rewilding world of the wild woman that I am. So, um, and for quite a few months, I've been wanting to go foraging. And about six weeks ago, I managed to make that happen. And we went to this amazing, um, which we now call uh, a jungle garden with this Thai guy who um, pre-COVID had just started to open up his land and take hotel guests around the land pick different things and then cook the meal at the end they've got like this little clay pot stove area which is absolutely fascinating so that's one part of this story um actually a couple of weeks ago my daughter was on an adventure camp and it was all about living off the land making things from bamboo and part of it was picking edibles so I managed to connect to a guy who this week last week just gone took me on a little a little walk Incidentally, though, the, the week was full of just random events. So at the start of the week, we pulled over near the road and there was a banana tree and this banana flower was just hanging down from the road. So I got my first chance to um, cook with banana flower, um, took the girls to Taekwondo a few days later. And there was a little lady just foraging by the side of the road. So I went over to her and, and learned some new plants. So every time we go to Taekwondo now, I'm going to be picking up these greens. They tasted really nice in a smoothie. Uh, but the actual trip, I went around this little jungle with um, a Thai guy. And the main thing we could find was um, bamboo, bamboo shoot, the root of the bamboo, which, um, you know, we see in Asian supermarkets all over the place you know he hacked it away he was super happy that he'd found this because we there wasn't actually much else um, to find so again I've learned how to cook with bamboo I made it into a bit of a soup with some other greens that he found he was just saying oh yeah this is going to taste nice and sweet this is nice um, there was quite a few fruit trees that the fruit had actually gone so it just shows you know Thailand is a big place for foraging and I think since Covid more and more people are going out into the wild and, and just living locally off the land. Um, incidentally there was a palm plantation and a rubber plantation all close by um, and I think this has negatively influenced the amount of foraging that can happen so I just wonder you know over the years what's going to happen with that um so anyway I learned loads from this guy it was a nice little walk and we're going to meet again this is just the start really of my next journey um it wasn't so tasty I did need a few extra things and I mean I'm glad I grabbed a handful of herbs from the hotel garden where members at nobody saw that I just whacked in a load of herbs but it, it still needed a little bit more flavor but I'm looking forward to making some stir fries later so um yeah I've loved this and I look forward to to doing more of it. Um, what about your experiences then, Siren Jess? Well, I had so much fun with this challenge. I knew that we had a couple fruit trees in the neighborhood, including the giant avocado in my yard that I was super excited about when we bought the house. But I told my friend and neighbor about this challenge, and she was really excited to join me. 
we planned a day and talked about talked to a couple of the other neighbors about what's in the neighborhood and found out we have even more trees that we didn't even know about. So Diana and Ken, my neighbors helped me as we gathered papayas, soursop, avocado, banana, and what we thought was lily koi, but it turned out to be pomelo. We're still looking for the lily koi source because we keep finding them, but unfortunately they drop on the road and we usually find them after they've been smashed and the chickens are eating them. So we have to try to race the chickens to find the lily koi. <laughs> but I've never tried soursop and I still haven't because when I cut it open, it was rotten and full of bugs. So that went straight into the backyard to let the chickens have at it. But I'm really excited to try another one. And now that I know where to find it, I feel like I can get it at peak ripeness and not have to worry about that again. I'm really excited to try to find the pomelos at, when they're at full ripeness because we didn't actually get them at a good time. Um, but I used to eat half of a pomelo every morning because they're actually really good for blood sugar. And as a hypoglycemic, I'm really excited to get them fresh because I've only ever had them in Ohio where they've been shipped across the ocean. <laughs> and now I have them at the end of my driveway. So it was really great to spend time with my neighbors and we shared some of our foraged goods with all the houses in our little pod of houses. Apparently it's very traditional to leave fruit on your neighbor's lanai's to share aloha. So not only was this a delicious challenge, but also found a way to spread aloha in our neighborhood. And I look really forward to doing it again. Elsie, how did it go eating green things? <laughs> well, that's outside my comfort zone for sure. But to be fair, I couldn't forage anything in the Cincinnati area. And I chose to pick something green because all the things I wanted to forage still had a few weeks before they were ripe, like Ohio State native fruit, the pawpaw. What I, what I made tasted okay, and yes, I did have several bites. I made wood sorrel soup. Wood sorrel is often confused for clover, but it has a distinct heart-shaped petal. That's right, if you are drawing your clovers with a heart leaf, you're actually drawing wood sorrel. The plant has a lemony taste to it, and in addition to the sorrel, the recipe called for coconut milk, mint, garlic, chives, and veggie stock. Strangely, it tasted like liquid rye bread to me. It reminded Jack of squash soup. And for Connor, after he tasted it, it was, mm -mm, mm -mm. <laughs> it spit it out. Uh, but what's confusing is that it's pretty evenly split on the internet that says whether or not it's edible or poisonous. And most of the resources I found said that it's a weed. And I find it funny that there are a lot of things that we are told are weeds or are bad for us that actually have a lot of health benefits, like dandelions. I did have quite a few takeaways from this challenge. One, we take for granted getting what we want or getting to eat what we want when we want it. Like I said before, some of the things that I wanted to forage are still growing. I would have loved to keep working on my pawpaw bread recipe. We have a secret spot where we go to get ours, or I would have loved to try roasted sunflower heads. Lesson number two, foraging takes a lot of work. I spent about a half hour picking wood sorrel leaves off the stock, and then I gave up after I found a millipede. I had about a quarter of the, I, I had to quarter half of the recipe because I only got a half a cup instead of the two cups that I needed. Lesson three, like Sarah already said, you are hyper aware of the things that have already nibbled on your food and sometimes are still there nibbling on your food. Lesson four, even as a certified naturalist for the state of Ohio, I am still woefully un, 
educated on plants as far as what is edible. Thankfully, there are resources out there to help, like feral foraging. I love that the creator, Jesse, breaks it down into steps that makes it easy to understand and enjoyable to watch. His passion and excitement for educating people on the topic will definitely have me watching his channel again and again, and I cannot wait to try the acorn bread recipe. TC, what were you trying to forage for in St. Croix? When I started this challenge, I knew exactly what I was going to make and had some idea of what I was foraging for, or so I thought. On the island of St. Croix, anytime you have a cold or you're feeling run down or nauseous, the answer is bush tea. I did a little research on it and quickly discovered that bush tea is found on all the islands in the Caribbean with a different twist depending on the local plants and food preferences. After a little more research, I discovered that some of the teas may actually be toxic. I read about the kidney problems prevalent on a few islands, which might be linked to some of the plants used in bush tea. But I think most bush teas are just warm, soothing, and delicious. Here on St. Croix, lemongrass is a common ingredient in bush tea. So I went in search of lemongrass. I found what I thought was lemongrass just on the other side of an old fence. Whose fence? I don't know, so I didn't go. Finally, I found some that seemed to be out in the wild. But how could I be sure it was lemongrass? I mean, I kind of know what it looks like. I crushed it between my fingers, and in my opinion, it didn't smell very lemony. I wondered what plant I had in my hand. It's similar to citronella grass, which can cause vomiting if eaten. Have you ever heard of jimson weed? prickly burr, or deadly nightshade? What about jumbi bean, crab's eye, or rosary, pencil euphorbia, milk bush? How about the manchineel tree? The manchineel tree is also known as the death apple tree. All of these plants are extremely toxic, some just by touch, and they are all growing here on my little island. And there are lots more. I even found a little trifold brochure with warnings about these plants with words like painful swelling, irritation, rash, infection, burning, blisters, convulsion, delirium, amnesia, blindness, liver failure, and the word death appeared three times. This challenge did not measure up well on the balance of risk and reward. And so, since I do not know what any of these things look like, I decided to mango out of this challenge with a mango foraged off a tree that I know well, and it was delicious. My video for this episode is how to eat a mango island style, and it does not involve a knife. I'm going to leave the foraging to people who know more about how and what to forage. Jesse Ekozbeck's mission is to empower people with the knowledge and tools needed to become more confident, ethical, and effective foragers. And it all started with a podcast and an acorn. Jesse is a photographer and videographer turned forager. He is the founder of Feral Foraging. Jesse first connected to native plants via photography and videography while on treks in the woods. It didn't take long before he became fascinated by the science and tradition behind them. He specializes in the identification, harvest, and preparation of useful wild plants and mushrooms, both native and naturalized to the Southeast U.S. He is as passionate about teaching as, as he is about the natural world. 
His classes are filled with details and systems that are broken down into approachable and easy to understand pieces. Feral foraging is his way of sharing his love for the wild with the world. Sirens, please welcome Jesse Kozbeck to this episode of Siren Soapbox. Welcome to the show, Jesse. Thank you. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Jesse, we're curious, what sparked this foraging frenzy for you? Yeah. So uh, as you mentioned, the story involves acorns. And uh, I was a student in college at the time uh, and was really just actually starting to get into podcast in general. And I found this one that was really interesting to me. It was called the Rewild Yourself podcast. Uh, And the host had a typical interview style. But before the interview, he would do a bit of a monologue. And for several episodes, he was talking about how he was going out and he was collecting acorns and he was processing acorns and doing all this stuff to ultimately be able to eat the acorns. And uh, I was actually attending Auburn University at the time. Auburn University in Alabama is known for their oak trees. And so there's oaks all over the place, acorns all over the place. And one day uh, I passed by this little kind of grove with an oak that was littered with acorns. And I thought, okay, you know what? I'm, I'm going to try it. So I grabbed a bucket and I harvested a bunch of acorns. Had about, you know, several gallons of acorns all of a sudden. So I thought, okay, well, now I actually have to do something with this. So I uh, did my research. I listened to more podcast episodes and I learned how, how to dry the acorns and then how to process them and leach them to make them uh, be able to be edible, turn them into a flower. And ultimately, I ended up with this acorn bread that I baked. And I'm not a baker, but uh, it turned out okay. And when I had that first bite of acorn bread from acorns that not too long ago I had picked up off the ground with my own hands and processed with my own hands and had this delicious meal with it, my mind was blown. I was hooked from that moment on. And then it started the next question. Okay, well, if I can eat these acorns, then what else is out there? And so uh, it was just coming up to spring. So then I started getting into uh, wild greens, spring greens. And I was like, okay, you know, now I want to learn about mushrooms. And so I learned how to do that. And it just kept on going and going. And to this day, it's still going and going of me, you know, finding new things and discovering new things that are around me in the wild uh, that I can eat to bring myself into, into the wild, to take part in it. So I watched your videos on how to make acorn bread. First of all, I was like hanging around my boyfriend, literally doing nothing. And I was like, I don't have 20 minutes to learn how to make acorn bread, but it turns out I did. And I watched every video and I cannot wait to try it, but my goodness, it is a process. Yes. Yeah, it definitely is a process. And that's something that uh, I I felt that way too, when I started. And of course, you know, it'd be so much easier to just go to the grocery store and buy typical flour and bake with that. And I think one of the cool things about working with acorns uh, is it's a really great kind of like gateway, or it's very resemblant of the experience of foraging. Because when I buy flour from the supermarket, And, you know, of course that was so easy, but all of the steps that were required to plant the wheat, to harvest the wheat, to process the wheat, to grind it and so on are hidden from me. 
And the cool thing about foraging is that from picking the acorn up off the ground and every step in between to bring it to bread, I was involved in that part of the process. And I think it's so cool to know every single step of the way and where my food came from and how it got to be in the form that I'm eating it as. So it is more work, but I think it's worth it. It is really cool. I have a friend um, who lives on a wooden boat on the Ohio River, and he invited us over for dinner once on his boat. And so prior to dinner, I see him out in the grass, like just walking on this hill and up in the weeds, and he's picking stuff in this bucket. I'm like, hey, Bruce, what are you doing? He's literally picking our salad. And then um, he t- as he's making it, he found these walnuts in his parents' yard and he ground the walnuts into flour and he made pasta and it took him very little amount of time. And he made this pasta and he served it with some kind of oil. I don't know. He had basically made all of the stuff from stuff he found on the ground and it was delicious and amazing. It felt really good to eat that. Yeah, it, it's it's a cool experience for, for multiple reasons, you know, the one aspect of it is that like, in your case, you saw literally, you can see where the food came from, like right in front of you. But then there's, there are more aspects to it. Um, you know, some of them are, are like, the, the process of foraging is, uh, I always joked, like, you know, generally speaking, people would agree that there are three things that are required to, to be healthy. You want to uh, eat good, nutritionally dense food, uh, you want to be exercising, moving your body around, and it's probably good to be outside too. And I always joke that, you know, I don't want to do all those three things individually, so I'll just go out and forage. And I do all three of those things at the same time where I'm going out, I'm finding delicious, very nutritionally dense wild foods, I'm moving my body, I'm hiking, walking around to get them, uh, and I'm outside in nature, you know, in, in one of the most calm settings that I can be in while I'm doing it. So are there other foods that require that speaking back to the acorns and the level of work it takes to get to the acorn flour? Are there other foods that you forage that require that much effort to eat? Yeah, it, it all, it all depends on, on what the food is. Um, and so the reason why the acorns require all that processing beyond, so of course, there's just, you know, there's drying for preserving and lots of things you can try them to preserve them. But then the step that takes the longest is the leaching process. And the reason why you need to leach them is because acorns contain tannins, which uh, in small amounts are even used medicinally, but in large amounts for a long period of time are not good for your body. So they're water soluble. So you just grind up the acorn flour, you leach it in water and the water pulls it out and then you'll change the water. And then eventually you won't have it anymore and you don't want them anyway because they're super bitter. So you wouldn't have a good bread. Um, And there are other wild foods that require different kinds of processing for different reasons. So one of them comes to mind um, that I'm foraging for right now are elderberries. And with elderberries, one would not want to consume them raw. Uh, I don't know if, so they do contain cyanide, but cyanide is very heat instable. So it goes away very quickly. There may be other things in elderberries that make it not able to be consumed raw. Um, so you need to heat them in some form. And so typically people will make like an elderberry syrup, um, or I think you could uh, ferment them as well because people also make elderberry wine. So then you'd be processed in some form to break down the things that make them difficult to eat or make them uh, 
to where you could actually get sick from eating them. And, you know, there are other foods out there that, you know, several different fruits um, like wild grapes or passion fruit or wild cherries that you can just eat them right there as they are and they don't require processing. So everything from that, very simple, you can pick them right off the vine and eat them all the way to something like acorns, which is a bit heavier on the processing side. What's your so, favorite thing to pick right off the vine and eat? To pick right off the vine? Um, wild grapes is definitely high up there, wild muscadine grapes, because they're just so, so sweet immediately. Uh, and one thing that I'll do is I'll um, get a, a rope and, and a tarp, because a lot of times the things with wild grapes is that it's easy to find them. It's difficult to find them in a place where they have, they're up high enough to have enough sun to fruit in, in a uh, large enough amount to make it worth your time. So uh, I'll get a rope and a tarp and I'll kind of like throw a line over and then I'll shake the tree and then all these grapes will fall from the heavens. And uh, yeah, <laughs> that, that's a really, really delicious one to have just immediately while I'm out there. Or another one, uh, in the springtime, and people might not like this one, but it has a taste of horseradish. It's in the mustard family. It's called toothwort. And I, I really like the flavor. So I'll just be hiking along. And when I see the flower, they pop up all over the place in Eastern North America in the springtime. And I'll just pick a plant and nibble on it while I'm walking along hiking. How do you get to that point where you are good enough to recognize something out in the wild? Like I was I had two types of wood sorrel and one was very green and then another one was kind of reddish. And I'm like, how do I know this isn't like a, a lookalike that's actually poisonous? And then even just looking online, there was kind of the mixed reviews on whether or not something is poisonous to eat. How do you, how did you learn and get to the point where you're at? Yeah. And um, so remind me, I'd like to talk about the wood sorrel thing because it, it is a common kind of, um, uh, piece of confusion that can come up about whether it's edible or not, or like, or the amount. Um, but yeah, how, how do you get to that point? So I was certainly right there too. And everything that I found is like, okay, I think it's this thing, but, but is it, you know, what, what if it's not? And I think that the, the main thing that comes to mind is what if there is a poisonous lookalike? And so there are several core skills that are involved in foraging. And I would say the first one to learn, the most important one is identification. And I always joke, uh, if you are good at identification, but bad at cooking, you might have a bad meal. But if you are good at cooking and bad at identification, you might have your last meal. So <laughs> identification is extremely important. And uh, it, it starts from what I would consider learning just the fundamentals of identification for the thing that you're after. So broadly speaking, that could be herbaceous plants, trees, or fungi. And they all have slightly different characteristics that you're looking for for identification. But what you want is a positive ID. Because if I have positively identified something, that means that I am 100% confident that I have this exact thing that I have. If you go into your pantry uh, and you pull out a carrot, you, you know it's a carrot nothing, nothing else looks like that carrot. And you want to be at that point with the things that are in the wild. It's going to take longer, especially if you think about, you know, for my whole life and for most people's whole life, they've never even stopped to think about, is this this thing or is, or is it possibly this other thing? 
And so generally speaking, 100% positive identification to me means I know at least five distinctive characteristics of this thing that I'm looking for. And I've also done research on poisonous lookalikes. And if there are some, then I know the characteristics of the poisonous lookalikes that will distinguish it from this thing that I'm looking for. So a great example of a plant that I wouldn't recommend for beginners that is better after you have a little bit more experience with plant identification, but it's, it's just a perfect example, would be Queen Anne's Lace versus Poison Hemlock. And it's a really important one too, because Queen Anne's Lace is edible. Poison Hemlock is not just toxic, but potentially fatal. So it's very important to know the difference between those two. And if you are looking, yeah, it, it's so scary, but, but <laughs> when, when you get, when you get into the details, it's not quite as scary. So Queen Anne's Lace has uh, a hairy stem, distinctively hairy. Poison Hemlock has no hair on the stem. And so there's a funny mnemonic. It's the queen has hairy legs. The queen has hairy <laughs> legs. And that's how you can remember wh which is which. Uh, that also represents what I would call a binary detail. So a binary detail is it either is this thing or it's not this thing. It has hair or it doesn't have hair. Not like, you know, some are more difficult if it's like leaf size or like maybe lobing where there can be different numbers of lobes on the leaves and things like that. Those are good, but I really like, especially for starting out binary details. So another one, and the first one that I teach when it comes to identifying plants, whether it's trees or herbaceous plants, is the uh, leaf type and the leaf arrangement. So uh, there are compound leaves and simple leaves. And once you've figured that part out, and I have details about this uh, that I teach on my website if people are interested. Uh, but once you've identified that, then you can look at whether the leaves are alternating or opposite. And that is a detail that I, to this day, use all the time, all the time, especially because someone brought up uh, plant identification apps. And there, there's a whole debate about, you know, whether or not it, you should use those and if they're, if they're safe. And I think that plant identification apps are fantastic. I use them all the time in conjunction with plant identification skills that you have to have both of them in order for it to be safe. So I will use the app and it'll tell me, oh, it could be, you know, one of these five things. And then I can look, okay, well, it says this thing has alternating leaves, but this plant in front of me has opposite leaves. So I know it's not that one. And then, you know, keep on going down the list and keep on going through the sets of details to ultimately arrive at, you know, I know it's this thing that I think it is because I see it has characteristic A, B, and C, and it doesn't have D and E, something like that. That is fascinating. So Sarah, hmm. did your queen have hairy legs? Yeah, plus um, the, the app that I was using is really, really sophisticated because you take a picture and it will... It, it takes the picture and then it shows you the exact same picture and exactly and it shows you several pictures and, and of that same thing with the description of it and and what it is um, and other characteristics of that of that plant and it had what? the little dot in the middle the little purple mm -hmm. dot in the very center of the flower and so what app do was, you use it was a picture picture this I think Right. I from, use Seek. Uh, picture this for on the uh, on iPhone. Do you, you use have to one? Uh, Jesse, do you use one? Yeah, the one that I use is called iNaturalist. 
And I think that Seek is actually based on the data from iNaturalist. I think that they're part of the same same company. Um, but yeah, and uh, like I said, I'll if I if I'm <clears throat> excuse me if I'm not sure, then uh, it's really good for getting to a group. So be like, you know, I think that this is in this family, for instance, and I'll take a picture of it and it will pop up like, yes, it is in that family. And so it's like, okay, great. Now I have um, some, a better direction to head of like, to find out what it is, especially if it can't get it down to the species, which I do need to get it down to the species 90% of the time to know that I can eat it. There are certain cases, let's say um, mints, for instance, where I don't need to get it all the way down to the species. If I have identified it as a mint, then I know that, you know, this group is safe. So I, I don't need to go all the way down, especially if like sometimes there are three species that are nearly identical. You know, there are certain cases where you don't have to go all the way down to species. But yes, iNaturalist is the one that I use and it's, it's worked very well for me. Even once you've identified it, um, with this app, it won't, it'll tell you some information, but it won't necessarily tell you whether it's toxic or edible. So then you have to flip over to, to Google and, and that's where it's interesting because you can Google and find several different websites and information sites that'll give you lots of different kinds of information. And that's where you can get the conflicting information because yes. I found several different bits of information, especially about the wood sorrel and, uh, um, which I found very interesting. So when I found one that said that it was toxic, I said, well, I'm gonna go with that one. <laughs> yes, and honestly, that is uh, the safe thing to do. And in cases where you do find conflicting information like that, it's probably best to consult with someone, uh, someone local, ideally, who has more knowledge about that thing. Probably what you'd want is someone who's been like, yeah, you know, I eat that thing all the time and it, it it's okay. So. <laughs> To really cover the, the wood sorrel thing, typically the reason why there's conflicting information about is it edible, is it not edible, is because wood sorrel contains oxalic acid, which there is concern around consuming. However, the context for that is that oxalic acid is present in many different plants. The most well-known one is probably spinach. Spinach contains a lot of oxalic acid. And so for people who are prone to getting things like kidney stones, they would definitely want to avoid wood sorrel because of the contents of oxalic acid. But, you know, if you eat spinach often, then wood sorrel is not going to be an issue for your consumption. And it kind of gets into there. There's an elevated concern, maybe even fear when you're dealing with wild plants, right? They're you know, it, it wasn't from what we would consider a, a safe place, like a grocery store. And, you know, is it, is it this thing? And even if it is this thing, like, I don't know a lot of people who have eaten it. So there's more concern there. Um, but that often does come with, I would uh, misattributed fear around some of those things. So often you have to dig through the details and kind of get to the, the root of what's going on. And that's something that I, I enjoy doing a lot. My wife and I have a podcast where we dig into different um, urban myths. We call it urban myths and medicine, and we cover uh, herbalism and herbal details and uh, different myths that have popped up around there. Because edibility is one thing, and then you get into herbs and medicinal uses, and that is a whole other ball game with all kinds of information that one can find. I appreciate your pun there where you said you dig in. <laughs> <laughs> 
kind of on the same line since we're talking about like myths and medicine. Um, I like a good conspiracy theory. Dandelions. We're told all the time that they are awful. Get rid of them. Get rid of them. But there are so many benefits to them. Do you think that maybe that there are certain industries that are telling us to not do these things so that they want us to be relied relying on them and not be sustainable on our own. It's, it's possible. I think a lot of it is that we have, we as, as humans are kind of collectively domesticating ourselves. Um, you know, we continue to move in a direction where we're getting further and further away from nature, not closer from it, especially if we go back to what we talked about at the beginning of, you know, when we used to be hunter-gatherers, all our food was from what we would now call the wild. Maybe they probably wouldn't call it the wild back then because it was just, you know, what they were a part of. Um, but yeah, I, I think that as, especially one thing that I'm really concerned about is the loss of generational knowledge. Uh, if we think of our, our grandparents and all the things that they knew about the land when they lived closer to the land and that a lot of young people today aren't interested in, in that at all. So what used to be knowledge that was passed on generation after generation, you know, if, if we lose our grandparents and, and they didn't tell anyone and no one asked them, then that's, that's gone and we can't just get it back. So it's, it's a big concern of mine. Uh, and it's why I care about this so much uh, of reaching as many people as I can, getting them excited about the wild, getting them excited about foraging and curious about it um, to, you know, do several things, hopefully that they might ask their grandparents like, Hey, you know, what kinds of things did, did you eat? Like, did you, did you ever go out and forage or do anything like that? Uh, all the way to like, Oh, wow. So there's value to my land. There's value in my land the way it is not with anything needing to be done to it. And I, I want to keep it for that. So all those things I, I think are really important and why I care so much about teaching people about foraging. I think that's what was great about like Liz and I going out with local people. Um, part of finding the the trees around me that we could forge from was because we would literally see people stopping their trucks on the side of the road and getting out and like, you know, searching through the, the trees for stuff. And we're like, oh, there's something there. <laughs> and getting to recognize it was hard too because we would stand under it and we're like what are they getting here where is it we've seen them stop here and we would stare at the tree for forever and then it'd be like that's it so I don't like I found mine through my neighbor Liz I don't know how you found your your guy that you went out with it, it was it was through a guy who who runs you know educational camps and he's just has more interaction with the ties i mean incidentally the guy who took me out he is a scuba diving instructor as well so i thought that was like i didn't even know that when i met him and so we had you know wonderful conversations you know who's doing that 25 30 years ago and now he does other things um but the, the draw for me you know i'm big into health and wellness and the reason i went down a natural route when i was in my early 20s i kept getting recurrent colds and coughs and i ended up seeing um, a naturopath who treated me with a herb mixture and it, it was amazing and it, and it sparked a curiosity back then it led on to me becoming vegetarian and other things so I, I would love to extract this knowledge from the locals about just using local 
herbs and plants to cure local ailments because you often hear you know oh yeah there's this tiger balm that they use or there's this you know I see sometimes people at yoga they get out this little mixture and, and they know it's just made from local local things they rub together um, I think it's important we maintain especially for, for me living in a place like Thailand I want those connections you know and I want to the, the, the locals love it this lady when I was you know when we were at Taekwondo just went over and she's going, you know, aroi mac mac, which means really tasty. And I'm like, yeah, cool, you know, taking it. And they they love you getting involved as well. So I think it's an important thing for us to do here. Yeah, and it, it gives value back to the land the way it is. Because I remember you mentioned the story that uh, there were a lot of places that were kind of cut down for palm oil or, or for, for rubber. And it, it's because, you know, for for a, a lot of the time now all the people saw that land for was the potential to be used for industry and when foraging is brought into the picture now it's like oh you know what are what's all the value that's out there right now and i always talk talk about that there's so much abundance out there but then there's even more potential for abundance in my backyard uh i'm i'm always out there doing uh, uh, people call it ecoculture so I'm getting rid of the invasive plants that are harming the, the native plants that are out there. I am finding forageable plants around me and I'm bringing them back here. So one of them is uh, there's an invasive field garlic and then there's a native uh, Canadian wild onion. And I'm trying to find the Canadian wild onion and then establish them in my backyard and get rid of the field garlic. So uh, it's one of the other aspects of foraging that I talk about, which is stewardship and culture. Uh, stewardship and cultivation, which is just as important as all the rest of them of now that I am, I, I'm taking part in nature, I'm taking from nature, but I also have to give back. And that is a pivotal part of the whole picture of foraging. There's a phrase here, um, the land is called the Aina. And if you're local, you're Kama Aina, which means of the land. So I think it's just very awesome in Hawaiian culture, how everything ties back to the land. And there's so much that people just plant in their backyards and home gardens are so popular for one, because everything's expensive here in Hawaii. And even in general with inflation and groceries and stuff like that, I think that it's forcing a lot of people to get back to the land and figure out what they can grow at home to just provide for their families. I think it, most of us found what we foraged in our yards and a lot of people don't realize how much is in our land that you can eat. But if you are out in the woods, how, how do you go about knowing the laws and the rules? Like, I think it was TC, <laughs> you didn't know whose land it was. You're like, I'm not going to take that. But <laughs> how... How do you know where to draw the line? How did you go about that when you first started out? Yeah, and th that's a very good question. And it is unfortunately difficult to answer or, or for one to find the answer to those questions. Uh, I, I wish it were easier. I wish that there was a more kind of like blanket rules around foraging. Um, but this particularly relates to public land. Of course, when it comes to private land, there's always like, you know, knock on someone's door and ask them, hey, you know, you happen to have this tree with this obscure forageable fruit. Do you mind if I take some? And uh, a lot of times people are like, oh, sure. Like, what is that thing? Like, can you tell me about it? And people are very receptive to it. 
But then when it comes to public land, uh, in the United States, at least where I've done some research on this, it completely depends on what the entity is that regulates that piece of public land. So there could be um, a national park or a national preserve, and that's uh, under the National Park Service of the Department of Interior. And then there's um, National Forest, which is US Fish and Wildlife. I don't even know if I'm getting all of these right. There's so, there's so <laughs> many, and, and so on and so on. And uh, each of them has not only a different set of regulations for what you can and can't do, but a different way to find out where those regulations are for what you can and can't do. Yeah, and broadly speaking, the things that they will regulate, so luckily, in a lot of instances, it is allowed, in many more it's not. But if they do regulate, it's typically a form of what you can forage for, how much of it you can forage, uh, how you are foraging for it, so like by hand or with tools, and for what purpose are you gonna use it for, personal user or commercial sale, things like that. And uh, on my website, I have a post called the rules and regulations of foraging on public land. And that's a great place to start. So if I, I go through the different entities of public land around me and like, okay, so for this one, for uh, National Park Service regulated one, you have to find the superintendent's compendium. And then this section is gonna tell you what it is. And I, I go through all of those details and how to find where that information is. So hopefully that'll be of help to people because it was difficult for me to find it when I set out to find that in the first place. Is there and there's a, a great article that I got a lot of info from that I link on that post that was very, very helpful for that research. Is there like a central place or these apps? I don't have any of these, but I'm definitely going to download one when we're done. Um, but is there like a central place that says how, how to forage, like to protect the plant that it came from? Like if it'll just come back from the roots, if you took the leaves or something like that. Um, I asked because when we cut the bananas, I actually already knew this because the guy that trims our trees told us this, um, who's a local and also told us how to cut coconuts, which is way more work than I'm willing to put in. But um, the bananas, after you cut the bananas down, you actually have to cut the, the base of the tree or it won't grow back um, and won't produce bananas again. But they actually all come from this central place and they send up little individual trees. So you always see banana trees in, in groups, but you have to, when you cut one down, you, you cut that individual tree down to the the stump so that'll come back um but if you don't do that then it'll die and and obviously for one i want more bananas but also <laughs> you know you want to take care of the the plant that it came from yeah absolutely it's funny that you mentioned that because i remember when i learned that about bananas and it blew my mind like i always thought the bananas were just a, you know a normal fruit tree and they were just going to keep on fruiting every year but it does not work that way at all apparently <laughs> Uh, but what you're getting after is what I would just call sustainable harvest, which is one of the core components of responsible foraging. And it is crucial. Uh, if my, so my theory is that I think we need more people foraging. And I think more foragers is a good thing. On the caveat that we're doing responsible foraging. And so sustainable harvest is very important. Unfortunately, 
for your question, is there a centralized place? I don't think that there is. And so this gets into the aspect of forging that I think is important, which is uh, knowing what you are forging for. So I wouldn't want to just go in the woods and be like, oh, cool, this plant seems interesting and pick it. Like, I'm going to find out, I'm going to go home and find out what it is. Because That's exactly how I foraged, Jesse. <laughs> <laughs> it's a... Uh, I, I would advise not to do it that way. And like, and like, so like 95% of the time that's, it's going to be totally fine. But for all I know, I just picked a ginseng plant, which is uh, very difficult to get established and threatened in my area. And I, I wouldn't want to do that as someone who cares about the land. So uh, yeah, that, that, that's, that's why uh, it's important. And so ginseng is one example. Uh, and that's a plant that is, uh, takes a long time to get to the plant's reproductive maturity, and is very sensitive to overharvest. Very sensitive to its environment being disturbed, and all kinds of things like that. Another plant which I really love is wild lettuce, and wild lettuce is a weedy biennial, so it puts up a stalk every other year, and it produces tons and tons of seed. It's in the same group as dandelion, so you know its seeds are going to puff up and then go in the wind. And I think that if I tried to, I couldn't put a dent in the population of wild lettuce. So that's kind of on the, on the very other side of the spectrum of like sensitivity of, of harvest. And so it just gets down to uh, learning, okay, this is this plant and understanding a, a bit more about how it reproduces and what sustainable harvest is for that particular plant. And that's for plants. The other side of the story is mushrooms. The cool thing about mushrooms is that there is way less concern about overharvesting with mushrooms. Actually, we're more concerned about preserving the environment with mushrooms than like harvesting individual mushrooms themselves. Another reason why I think foraging is so great because then more people care about the land, we preserve more of the environment, we get more mushrooms. Um, but the, the thing about mushrooms is that they're more synonymous to an apple on an apple tree than picking a plant itself. If I pick a mushroom, I have essentially picked the fruit. So I didn't damage the, the organism that's underlying where the mushroom came from. This is broadly true. Uh, some people might want to debate on morel mushrooms and if certain picking is better or worse than others and so on. But broadly speaking, harvesting any mushroom in any amount is totally fine and will not impact the future population of the mushrooms. So that's another part of the story. And another reason why I love to forage for mushrooms so much is that um, actually through the process of foraging, going out and gathering them and you know, taking them in my basket, taking them other places, getting the spores in my shirt and them dropping other places, I'm helping to proliferate these mushrooms that I love even more. What is next for feral foraging? And might I suggest you write an ID book to help people <laughs> sustainably forage things in ID. <laughs> yeah. Can't be a coffee table book though. Those are too big, little, right. little book. <laughs> so I will say uh, that that may be at, at some point in the future. Uh, the great thing is that uh, this one gentleman has already done a phenomenal job of writing, at least for uh, the part of the world that I'm in, Eastern North America, identification and foraging books for, I mean, just about everything that, that you can imagine. Uh, his name is Sam Thayer. And he has three different, actually I got one right here. This is one of them. It's called uh, Nature's Garden. 
He has three different books that covers all kinds of different wild uh, edible plants that you can find. And they are really phenomenal. He gets into identification and how to use them, processing them, safety, sustainable harvest, all of that stuff. Uh, so that's a very foraging specific book. And then for people who are interested in identification in general, then you have field guides. And I highly recommend that people pick up field guides. And what uh, I would encourage you to look for is in the back of the good field guide will be, or, or some part of the field guide will be a key. And keys are fantastic for learning the fundamentals of identification for the group that you're looking for with that field guide. Because a key is going to lead you through the process of, okay, you know, let's say for trees, are the leaves compound or simple? Are they opposite or alternating? And they're going to start with the most important details, the ones that are uh, the most important to learn first, and then go through to some of the smaller details for like, is it this hickory tree or that hickory tree? But field guides are amazing and keys are amazing for learning identification. We want to leave our listeners with a challenge this week to go out and forage yourself a snack or a meal and then tell us about it by using the hashtag Siren Soapbox and all the social medias. But please be sure that what you are eating is safe. So we make sure you're doing the research before you're popping poison hemlock in your mouth instead of Queen Anne's lace. <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. For, for anyone who's taking up that challenge, remember, you need to arrive at a 100% positive identification uh, so that you know exactly what it is, so that you know that it's safe and then know how to process it correctly or eat it correctly. Fried and butter is good. Yes, that, that is generally, yeah. <laughs> generally the answer. Sure. <laughs> Jesse, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Do you want to let our listeners know where they can find you? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I post a lot of videos on YouTube. That's probably the main place where you can find my work. I have both uh, long form videos and short form videos on YouTube. And then I also like to post uh, articles on my website uh, that kind of go into a bit more details and nuance of the, the subjects that I talk about with forging. That's where you can find the info of um, public land, and rules and regulations of foraging, as well as some other great ones for beginners, like uh, resources, like the field guides that I mentioned and other helpful resources for beginner foragers. And then I also post some photos on Instagram. Great, thank you. Sirens, what a fun episode. Thank you for sharing your adventures and foraging with us. And thank you fellow explorers for listening to this episode. Want to participate in the challenges alongside us? Then just check out our website, sirensoapbox.com to see what we're up to and how you can participate. And while you're there, send us a challenge. If we pick your challenge, we'll invite you to join us on that episode. Go ahead and click like and subscribe wherever you're listening right now so you'll never miss a single release. And until next time, dive in, stay curious, and be happy. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Siren Soapbox. And a special thank you to C-Strings for providing our music. Snag their latest EP from iTunes today. Follow the Sirens on all the social medias. And don't forget to tell your friends about us. Like and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll catch you next time on another episode of Siren Soapbox.